Here We Stand, Singing the Hymns of the Reformation, is an album of hymns that were sung at various conference locations throughout the years. It includes A Mighty Fortress, Christ Jesus Lay in Death's Strong Bands, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast in Your Word, and seven others. The album and its ten tracks are available for download on Apple iTunes, Amazon MP3, and Google Play. CDs are also available for purchase. For more information on Here We Stand, singing the hymns of the Reformation, head over to www.higherthings.org slash herewestand. Here We Stand, singing the hymns of the Reformation, daring you to sing Lutheran. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, and as always, uh, I'm joined by Pastor Christopher Gillespie, expatriated Pastor Christopher Gillespie. <laughs> heavily caffeinated. Pastor, heavily caffeinated Pastor in Exile. I am Pastor Don Riley, uh, responsible for uh, villainous monologuing and spiritual and moral superiority. <laughs> I think that's just establishing that beachhead, right? <laughs> got your flag and your freak flag fly (laughs) jeez that's awful uh this week we decided we had to hit you know one of the would you say he's on the mount rushmore of lutheran theologians uh well missouri synod in the united states missouri synod in the united states in the united states in perry county missouri (laughs) right exactly he is he is the mount rushmore at that point (laughs) <laughs> there's there's no one taller in, in Perry County at that point, yeah. But, it, you know, you bring up an interesting point, though, when you travel outside the United States, specifically the Midwest, and you speak with Lutherans, it, I don't know, it's like talking with a high school kid who doesn't know who Marilyn Manson is, and you feel like that's ubiquitous, that even if you're not a fan of Marilyn Manson's music, it's just the pop, the zeitgeist, the pop culture. Right. In certain of his songs, like Beautiful People mm-hmm. or his cover of Tainted Love, like they just, they pass down from the generations because it's just a part of the pop culture consciousness. And then they say, never heard of Marilyn Manson. And it puts, it's just weird. You have this existential crisis <laughs> because you think, but everybody knows who that is. Or like asking someone, you know, or someone saying they don't like the Beatles. <laughs> Surely. There's got to be at least one song by the Beatles that everybody can love. We did a show on the Beatles, didn't we? Essentially, we <laughs> Just did. Just about. <laughs> you got me off on Dig a Pony and All You Need Is Love. And that was. <laughs> I listened back to that podcast and I, I caught like seven Beatles references. Good. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the way with Walther. We, we think in at least conservative Lutheran circles that Walther is ubiquitous. And yet when I travel outside the United States, no, not everybody knows who CFW Walther it was or what he means or, or his theology or whatnot. And yet he is referred to by Lutheran church, Missouri Senate Lutherans as the, what the American Martin, the American. Martin yeah, Luther, that's right. That's right. You know, for all of his efforts at organizing the church mm-hmm. and just a rough biographical sketch. Uh, when Walther emigrated here, uh, following the Prussian union, which you can Google, but the Prussian Union caused many Christians to leave Europe, not just Lutherans. Right. And essentially what the Prussian Union did, though, <laughs> excuse me, in, in Walther's neck of the woods, is the Presbyterian Church and the, or Reformed Church and the Lutheran Church merged. And as a consequence, many 
Lutherans, many Reformed, many Presbyterians who were conservative theologically took exception to this. And then as a consequence, they left Germany, they left that area, and they came this direction to the colonies. But what they encountered, so they're leaving Europe over doctrinal differences, theological differences. They get here and discover that not only are Lutherans a a minority in the Christian church, a vast minority, but that they've essentially assimilated, excuse me, I don't know, it's fall for those of you listening in the future, and uh, there's a lot of corn and bean dust in the air, so... I'm a little phlegmy, a little verklempt. Yeah, frogs are in season too. That's right, they are. <laughs> that they immigrated over here when they encountered the Lutherans that were already living here in the colonies and whatnot. They had pretty much assimilated into society. They were just kind of functionally American evangelical Christians. And uh, then when this group came up the Mississippi, mm-hmm. they settled in uh, that middle of the country place that... I don't understand why anyone would settle there, Missouri. But uh, shout out to well, everybody I, from Missouri. I'm sure you like it. It's great. It kind of got sick on the boat, maybe, you know, about mm-hmm. halfway up. And it's just. It's like that <laughs> Simpsons episode about the founding of Springfield that they thought they heard the Pacific Ocean, so they stopped. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it turns out it was just a river. <laughs> so, so this assimilation into American culture, I, I yeah. wonder about that. I mean, there seems to be an inferiority complex. With uh, mm-hmm. with those Saxon immigrants, especially that they just they don't have much confidence. Um, it seems theologically. No, and that's funny you mentioned that because where I live at Minnesota, it's kind of a Garrison Keeler kind of storytelling, you know, myth or whatever you want to say that Minnesotans suffer from an habitually suffer from a, an inferiority complex. Oh, yeah? That's why we. That's why Vikings fans hate the Packers. That's why. Minnesota people are always making fun of Wisconsin people and vice versa, is that as a, as a state collectively, our culture, which is primarily Scandinavian German, has in this inferiority complex. Like we don't measure up to these other groups. And yeah, once you're aware of it and you start looking for it, you notice it very quickly. It's like my wife pointing out while we were watching these videos, these interviews with college students, that this one woman being interviewed kept saying like like mm. this and then it was like and like and then all you i could hear afterwards i couldn't listen to them anymore because that's all i heard then was that cue it's a terrible thing so the the germans come over here the prussians come over here and settle and what they discover isn't to their liking and one of the theologians that really rose to the occasion was cfw walther yeah young guy too right when he came over yes. he's in his 20s yes yeah where was he at when he gave these lectures, the long gospel lectures was that at, these are taken from? Was he at Springfield? From? I think he was in Springfield. Was it, was Springfield, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, I was thinking of another of something else. But that these then theses that we are eventually going to get to in this podcast are from these lectures. And as I was told, and you can correct me because I'm a Luther guy, not a Walther guy, um, these are taken from the notes of the students that attended. These are not from Walther's actual notes. Hmm, I don't know that. Uh, and that later, I think they were edited, you know, along with Walther's notes. But that the problem was that, as I was told it by someone who wrote their demon on this, hmm. Walther often just riffed yeah. because he knew the material so well from speaking out for so long that he had an outline, but he didn't have paragraphs. He didn't have a manuscript. And so a lot of what he was saying, especially because these took place over the course of several nights, um, 
he would just go off on tangents, much yeah. like Luther would do. Yeah, actually. wasn't it? It was once a week. Was it on Sunday night or Saturday night? I can't remember. I think so. It was on Saturday or Sunday. I've seen a picture of that that uh, space with the chairs and, and him up there on the dais and whatnot. It's kind of like a fireside chat kind of thing, right? It is. It's a remarkable. I'd like to go there for sure, just because of the historicity of it and the beauty of the architecture. But that, in fact, I think the, this is the, the edition that I have of Law and Gospel is old, old, old. Mine's a black, hardbound edition from the early 1900s that's been written in by several different pastors. Uh-huh. Because you were my favorite books. Because you were cheap, right? You didn't want to buy a new copy, and so you just. No, I inherited it from a, a widow. When uh, I was okay. at Concordia Portland. She invited me to come to her husband's library, and she said to me, "Take whatever you want." Nice. And I, of course, immediately freaked out because it was a pastor's library and it was quite large. Mm-hmm. And so I loaded up a, two bags as much as I could carry, and I took went back to my dorm. And then I was going to come back the next night. And in between me leaving and coming back, her kids had visited. Uh-oh. And have a talk with her and said, hey, 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 we can sell this. <laughs> so I was only allowed to take, and one of the books that I was allowed to take in passing, because I didn't notice it, uh, was this this book on law and gospel. They saw no value in selling this book, and so I got it. But the, the copy that we're looking at, is this the Kindle? This is the Kindle version? This is, yeah, this is the same edition, but it's a Kindle edition. All right, because there's a newer translation, right? Yeah, there is, but I've read this one so many times that it's like reading the updated edition of Luther's Small Catechism. I just know where the stuff is at. But this is, for me personally, my favorite of all of his theses in his his, uh, Law and Gospel lectures, Thesis 25. Uh, And we're just going to go through first two paragraphs or so. So for those of you playing at home, this is the Kindle edition of Walther's Law and Gospel, the non-updated version. (laughs) So in the uh, thesis 25, then, at the end uh, of all the lectures, in the 21st place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the person teaching it does not allow the gospel to have a general predominance in his teaching. Got it. I think that's something that's been lost about the theses is that theses are made they're intended to be discussed they're intended to provoke dialogue that's the beauty that's why i think this is my my comment to you about uh, uh, lutherans and assertions right <laughs> right exactly that we 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 were born out of assertions and then eventually hung ourselves by them yeah that's yes right. if you ever want to see a, a genuinely uh like provocative exciting MMA fight, just throw a theological argument between two Lutherans <laughs> and just yeah, say, go. Sem- Semper Virgo, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there is something to theses like the Heidelberg Disputation and the way Luther presents those theses in, in these that it does. It provokes dialogue because they're an assertion. They're an unqualified statement of fact. But this is a this is how many theses are there? This is towards the 39. end. Thirty nine. Yeah, this is the thirty ninth. Yeah, this is kind of a summary thesis, really, of what's come before. Yeah, it seems. No, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. The word of God is not rightly divided when the person teaching it does not allow the gospel to have a general predominance in his teaching. It is an exceedingly important subject, Walther says, that we are taking up in this our concluding study. We are told in this thesis that law and gospel are confounded and perverted for the hearers of the word, not only when the law predominates in the preaching, but also when law and gospel as a rule are equally balanced, and the gospel is not 
predominant in the preaching. Yikes. So there you go. What, so what does this word predominant mean? <laughs> yeah, pre, to, to, pre, to predominate, to, to get out in front of that problem before it starts. Yeah, so we get, start, in a sense, maybe, is he saying we start and end with the gospel? I mean, we're always, or he's, he's talking about quantity or quality. What are we talking about here? That's a good point, because, well, in relation to your question, the old Adam loves numbers, right? We love to count things up and apply value to them. So is it a matter of value? Well, no, because Walter is just riffing off of what Dr. Luther said, too, about letting the, the gospel must predominate, the gospel must have the last word. Um, because the gospel forgives, the gospel communicates the promise, it gives life, eternal salvation. So it must be the final word. So it's not a matter of value. The dictionary, dic- yeah, dictionary says, this is interesting, uh, you know, I've never used a dictionary before, but thought of Try it this time. <laughs> the strongest or main element, it can mean greater in number or amount, um, but the second definition is interesting. Uh, to have or exert control or power. Oh, wow. So, to, like, to predominate over the public good is to, you know, is to, uh, to be in control of that. Exert power. I like that. Yeah. Well, we were talking about the power of the gospel in the last podcast. Yeah, right. right. Not only when the law predominates in the preaching, but also when the law and gospel as a rule are equally balanced and the gospel is not predominant in the preaching. So therefore, the gospel is not the gospel if it doesn't exert power over your preaching. And over the law in your preaching. And right? over the law in your preaching, exactly. That's right. You know, that's re- that's reflection in the New Testament, of course, right? Where the, right. Uh, the law has this kind of, uh, what it's God's alien work we say in our theology, but... You know, it has it has this servant role to the gospel. Right. Well, like Paul says in Galatians mm-hmm. 2, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. And that, uh, we discussed this in adult Bible study in Galatians last night, actually, that in our attempt to obey the law to earn God's favor, we end up actually producing works of the flesh. <laughs> because that, that verse in chapter 2, that section in chapter 2, leads you back to chapter 5 and Paul's description of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And that in attempting, for example, to obey the first commandment to have no other gods, you end up uh, practicing idolatry. And in relation to, let's say, the uh, fifth commandment and the sixth commandment, in attempting not to murder and not to commit adultery, you end up becoming even uh, more adulterous, not only in your thinking, but your doing. And you become more murderous in your thoughts, angry, causing divisions and strife and so forth and so on, and that even though the law of God is good, sin uses it in such a way that the only thing it produces in us is the worst. Right. And therefore, the law is not going to lead us to salvation, but rather hinders us, Heidelberg number one, and therefore the gospel must exert power over the law because only the gospel can save us from what has fallen upon us because of how sin uses the law to exert power over us, actually. That's yeah. the way Paul describes it in Romans 7. Right. Yeah, captivity, but also a, you know, a mistress, right, in Galatians? Yes. Yeah. Yes, a cruel mistress, mistress. A cruel mistress sin. And thus, the gospel, according to Walther here in Thesis 25, must predominate, it must dominate, and interestingly, law and gospel must never be allowed equal balance. Yeah, that's a... That is a quantity statement, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or balance maybe in priority, you might say, too. Or weight, gravity. Yeah. 
like the law does this, the gospel does this, and they have like equal benefit or <laughs> purpose mm-hmm. in the life. Right. In Christian. Which is an interesting statement you just made in relation to Walther that how many Christians do believe that law and gospel hold, what did you say, equal, mm-hmm. have equal parts? Yeah. Well, they're, they're both the word of God, right? So, right, exactly. So, they're both God's word. So that must mean they're, they're equally important because they're equally God's word. Right. No, it's a good point. It's like saying, I, if I go from scolding my children to telling my children I love them, my voice stays the same, just the tone changes. Likewise, law and gospel, even though they're both God's word, it's not just a tonal change, but it's literally the change from death to life, from judgment to freedom. In view of the precious character of this subject, I am seized with fear, lest I spoil it by my manner of presentation. Hmm. The longer I have meditated on this subject, the more inadequate does the expression that I can give it, so precious is this matter. Proper amount of humility peppered in there. So he's, he's worried about messing it, yeah, messing it up, right? Spoiling the whole thing. Well, and he... So. he takes from Luther at the beginning of these these um, weekly, not daily, weekly mm-hmm. um, uh, delivering of these theses, uh, that only the Holy Spirit possesses the art of distinguishing law and gospel, and right. therefore only he is worthy to be called a theologian who can distinguish law and gospel. And this is, for Luther, the highest art of pastoral care, is being able to distinguish law and gospel. The harder he tries to describe it in an abstract way, we might say, right? That, yes. That, or the harder he tries, the more difficult he finds it to be. You know, mm-hmm. to put words to it, it's it simply, uh, like you say, an art or a technique um, that's given, <laughs> you know, or and practiced. And right. Well, it, when it becomes too abstract, people do what what we all do is we start assigning value to it because it, it's just floating around as an idea in search of meaning, in search of definition. And that's what we as human beings do is we're constantly attempting to expand our lexicon so that we can expand our definition of things. And in the one hand, yes, that's a positive thing, especially in relation to loving your neighbor. But the negative side of it is we're trying to control more and more of what we previously could not control. And that's our attempt to be God in God's place. Well, and it's it's like taking... um Taking Walther's words here, where he's where he's explaining, you know, law gospel properly. Um, yeah, you know, not, not the gospel predominates, and then saying, well, that he's outlining a sermon form, right? And that if we yeah. do it, if we do the sermon in this form, just right, then it's going to work, and I will mm-hmm. can check off that that box that I had gospel predominating because because right. it was a page and a half of my two page sermon or something. <laughs> we we call those creamer sermons, yeah. half and half. <laughs> yeah, balanced. Yes. Um, but no, that's a good point because uh, something I discussed when I ever, ever lecture on the bondage of the will is Luther's point about the categorical nature of the gospel. There's law, there's gospel, there is Christ, there is Satan, there's the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of the right, that everything is categorical, there's all these distinctions. But yet, at the heart of that is Luther's assertion that the gospel actually has no meaning, that Erasmus's failure is attempting to assign some sort of meaning to the gospel, to basically say to God, when you speak, I'll tell you what you mean. Versus Luther saying, no, when God speaks, he does what he says. For God to speak is to do. Therefore, when God says, let there be light, he doesn't have to hire an electrician to wire up the house. There's just light. Therefore, when the gospel is proclaimed, when it's preached to you, the forgiveness of sin in Christ's sake for, your, for you, 
you it just does that. It actually forgives your sin. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when we try to uh, to put meaning and add a definition, what is the gospel? If that definition isn't the forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake, we try and write uh, that definition, and that's how we control the gospel. Yeah, I was thinking and the about, same with the law. I was thinking about this not just in preaching, but with the sacrament yesterday. That um, um, I heard a lecture where uh, the assertion was made that the Eucharist is at the center of the Christian's life, right? The, the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper. Yeah. Um, not just because of forgiveness of sins, but it's the it's the body and blood of Christ, and we're joined into that body, uh, and that it's a communal event. So it's it's congregation gathering and all that. Um, and I was so he was trying to make that point, and then I thought, well, I mean, he made the assertion, didn't really back it up. But then again, we do call the sacrament, you know, a mystery, right? It yes, does these things yes. because God says it does. Can we explain that fully, you know? And and Mm-mm. I was thinking about, like, as a pastor, how do how do you convince somebody of the importance of receiving the Lord's Supper? Right? <laughs> Can you really do it, or rather, you just say, "Here's the Lord's Supper. This is for you. And it gives yeah. forgiveness of sins. Receive." And uh, that's like asking if a grasshopper can comprehend a human being. <laughs> Yeah, it's like unless the human being becomes a grasshopper and it explains to him what it's like to be a human being, the grasshopper has no comprehension of what this mountain is. <laughs> so, by extension, and, I mean you you preach the gospel, uh, yes. and and the power of the gospel is is in the work of the Spirit through that word alone. Exactly, right? It's not it's exactly. not through your what uh, rhetoric and mm-hmm. you know super winsome personality. Well, and that's a good point too to bring up because I learned this from Doctor Nagel is that. There is two levels. And this is actually in Flacius' uh, book that he wrote on hermeneutics back in the hmm. 1560s, 1550s. How to Understand Sacred Scripture, Clavus Scriptura. That's what it is. And it's in a box somewhere in my own. It is in a box somewhere. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Um, that There are two levels to this. There is the distinction of law and gospel that only the Holy Spirit can act out, work out, and you, the preacher, are the instrument. But there's also the rhetorical side mm-hmm. of law and gospel that Dr. Nagel would say, when we're reading the Bible, whatever gets in the way of Jesus being delivered for you is law, and wherever Jesus is delivered for you, that's gospel. And I tested that out with an agnostic um, man who came to church, who came to Bible study. And and I used the example when I was an atheist in college, and I had to, Concordia St. Paul, I had to take a New Testament and an Old Testament class as part of the core curriculum. And I got A's in both classes. And I've told the story before, the Christians couldn't understand how an atheist could get straight A's and they had gotten B's and C's. And my point was to them, well, I don't have to believe it. I just have to memorize it. I just have to answer the test questions. I don't have to believe what I'm saying. And that's where they were getting hung up at. They were reading the Bible and then trying to interpret it. Whereas I was just stating rhetorically, this is what it says. Yeah. I wasn't trying to like fuss out the meaning of it. And likewise, then, you can distinguish between law and gospel on that level, rhetorical level, uh, but yet to believe it and to actually have it hit the hearer in the ear or the reader in the ear is entirely the work of the Spirit. Right. To believe it. So, Dr. Walther takes a step back and says, I'm going to try and <laughs> distinguish this for you and uh, let the gospel predominate. But just in case I don't, I just want to apologize ahead of time, he says. <laughs> so let us return, he writes, to the Holy Scriptures, or he says, let us return to the Holy Scriptures and become convinced that in a general sort of way, the gospel must predominate in the preaching of a Christian minister. The first proof of this claim is furnished by the first preacher after Christ had been born into this world. He was an angel. Well, 
if anybody's going to preach it right, uh, God's messenger that might do it. Yeah. As long as it's not John, John Travolta. <laughs> There's a deep, deep reference. I haven't dropped one of those in a while. Oh. Yep. You're, you're welcome for that, listeners. The relationship of angels to John Travolta. Go. <laughs> the first proof of this claim is furnished by the first preacher after Christ had been born into this world. He was an angel. He preached to the shepherds who were terrified by his celestial splendor. That's a nice name for a prog rock band. Celestial Splendor. That's right. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Luke 10, or Luke 2, verse 10. In his, the angel's address, there is not the least trace of the law, of injunctions, of demands that God makes upon men, but the angel preaches the very opposite concerning the goodwill and mercy of God to all men. He is joined by the heavenly host who sing exultingly, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, Luke 2.14. Again, we hear nothing but a sweet, pleasant message of joy. Our Father in heaven has had his honor restored to him. He had created a race of men of whom he knew that they would fall, but he did everything possible to save men. God suffers himself to be rejected. That's unconditional love. The infant born in the stable at Bethlehem has established peace between God and mankind. The only thing that God requires is that men be pleased with his arrangement for their salvation <laughs> and take comfort and rejoice in this infant. That's right. Hmm. So, so the only thing it requires, in a sense, is thank you, right? Right. <laughs> That's say great. thank you. Thanks. Okay. Say thank you or <laughs> grandma's not going to send you money for your birthday anymore. Or amen would be another way to say that, right? That's right. Isn't it interesting if you read the New Testament? I don't know who pointed this out or if I just caught it my, on my own. But the, when the angels show up on the scene through the whole infancy, you know, birth narrative, conception, yeah. every time, it's always, don't be afraid. I'm like, why are these people so afraid of angels? Right. Well, <laughs> go back to Daniel. I mean, exactly. go back to Daniel. Yeah. And you're like, just, huh, I'll huh. pass. <laughs> but, but the idea of like God's visitation um, being one, not of fear and of terror and of judgment, but coming with good news. That's right. not universally held since uh, pretty much everybody was terrified. Well, isn't that interesting that the first man and woman, that's their response to hearing God coming in the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet all those thousands of years later, that's still the same, like you point out, that's still our same response. Yeah. Although it is interesting that Manasseh's wife, or Manoah's wife, Manoah's wife just talks with the Lord as if it's no big deal, and her husband's the one who freaks out and wants to offer animal sacrifices and make right. revelations. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think this this probably reveals, I mean, really the distinction of law and gospel in a, in a very dramatic way. Very much, and the, yeah. The, that the gospel is this power, you know, over fear and terror of judgment. It, it, mm-hmm. And it is, at least in the hearts of mankind, it's, it's foreign to us. We don't we're terrified of the idea of God visiting us because we only know him as a God of judgment. And, right. Uh, apart from him coming and telling us and, and, and doing this for us. You know? Well, and that's the thing you pointed out is our reaction to the gospel is fear. <laughs> and yet for those who are already, what do, what do you say on the other side of that, so to speak, they're on the, they're on that side of the street. They've received grace and mercy. They've heard the promise like Jonah, and yet Jonah's reaction is the same as as anybody else, which is when he hears, I want you to go to Nineveh so you can justify them and for my sake. 
His response is fear and to run away. So that the old Adam, a sinner's reaction to hearing the gospel, is to run away, to be afraid, to be afraid. And in my, my experience um, as a pastor, I found that the people who, who would cling most tenaciously to, to the gospel, to the preaching of the gospel, mm-hmm. the, to the sacrament, to their baptism, are those um, who had brought to that, been brought to that fear of terror and judgment and had received yeah. you know, the power of salvation in the midst of that. You know, and, and they won't give it up. <laughs> no, of course not. Because it's not only a hunger, but it's also, well, it's like there's this book called Young Men and Fire by Norman McLean. And he discusses in the book that animals and even people that get caught in these big forest fires, these wildfires, when they get caught by them, like the fire will jump them. And then they're suddenly surrounded. And I've talked with, I grew up in northeastern Minnesota on the Iron Range. So I have known fire jumpers the whole time I was growing up. My dad drove truck for helicopters for fire jumpers. Hmm. And you talk with them and they describe fire as a living organism because it, it has, as they would say, its own personality. It moves and it doesn't fo- obey any sorts of laws and it can jump over your head. It can go underground and come up roots and then explode out of a tree. It does really crazy things you can't predict. And that on a regular basis, these fire jumpers are caught in these fires because the fire will jump them or whatever, and now they're surrounded, they can't get out unless someone comes and rescues them. And for those who are caught in such a way that they have to dig a, a, a trench in the ground to escape being suffocated, actually, because the fire is sucking up all the oxygen, they never actually recover completely from those experiences, a lot of them. Hmm. And one of the things that is, is similar to both animals and people who escape those fires is they can never stop drinking water. They're always thirsty. So an animal, like a deer that gets caught in a fire and escapes, will drink itself to death because somehow its brain is just sending it to the signal that we're, we're parched, we're on fire, we need more water, and people will do the same thing. And to your point then, for people that hear the gospel, they actually hear the gospel, there is a joy to it, mm-hmm. a kind of satisfaction, but there's also then a constant hunger for the gospel. Right. Yeah, because it changes them, right? Right. It does. It changes your heart in such a way that you become ravenous for the gospel. And like the analogy we've used many times on this podcast about your lungs and asthma, and you don't really think about your breathing until you have an asthma attack, you never really think about the gospel until you don't have it. But if if you've never heard it, you're thinking about it in a way that's actually the law, law law-driven. And if you have heard it, you're constantly listening for it to come again. And that hunger for the gospel, that hunger for the forgiveness of sin in Christ's name can drive you to a point of anger. And not anger in the sense of a violent like rage or um, a sense of self-righteousness, but an anger in the sense of starvation. Yeah, like a deep sense of uh, disappointment, yeah. of needs right, not exactly, met. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think that's that's really what Walter drives at. That's what Dr. Luther drives at. It's that ultimately law and gospel for us is a not, it's a matter of salvation. Therefore, it really is a matter of pastoral care. And it's not indifferent either. Right. No, it's not neutral. There's no DMZ. <laughs> because as Luther points out a number of times in his Psalms lectures, the devil, the rod and the staff of the devil are sin and death. And the way in which he, he 
gives those power is through hurling the law at us, spitting the law at us. And we run toward the rod and the staff of sin and death rather than away from them. Yeah. What, what, do, we, what, what do people do on Ash Wednesday? Yeah, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. <laughs> right. I always, that, that statement always kind of strikes me. I mean, there's, there's a truth to it, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not, it can't stand alone. If that's the only message that you hear in church right. on Ash Wednesday, <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty terrifying. Right, it's just because the law. Yeah, death predominates there. The law predominates. You deserve to die, and you're going to die. I think a couple of years, I actually, I, I, I just, I couldn't handle it, so I just added another statement to it, um, something like, uh, "But you're baptized into Christ," or something. <laughs> I, I, just, right. I couldn't but, let that be the final word that you heard before. Um, right. I know you go confess your sins, and you hear absolution. Mm-hmm. Then, so it shouldn't be that terrifying, but. No, but you can rob them of their pious expectations by just simply declaring the gospel to I've, them. And I've heard parents, especially, is that those words are said upon their children. Those parents really, uh, it really terrifies right. them because they, they think right. of their kids kind of in an immortal way. So, so there's a helpfulness there. Yes, of course. Um, it, yeah, it, it, the interesting thing about a tradition like Ash Wednesday is it's like trying to explain the event horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, every every show does it the same. They take a piece of paper, they draw a line with two points, they fold the paper, they shove the pencil through the paper, and they go, ta-da, that's an event horizon, that's a tesseract or a wormhole. Pick your science fiction. Mm-hmm. But that, when it comes to traditions like that, we tend to try and choose the simplest method of explanation mm. rather than stepping back and going, is this a little bit more nuanced possibly? Yeah. Is, there, is there possibly more to it? Is there a possibility that we're not negating one by simply asking the question, is there not more? Is there not a, another word that should predominate this word? Yeah. Is there one word or are there two words? Yeah. It's like people who believe that there's the law and then there's the law and then there's the law and there's three different laws. Hmm. And then the preacher just chooses from his toolbox of laws, which law he's going to preach in that particular moment. And that's pastoral care. And then the, the gospel just becomes kind of a salve to take mm. away the sting from the burn of the law versus, no, there's law and there's gospel. There's God's word of law and there's God's word of gospel. And when God speaks, he can only speak one at a time. But he has yeah. those two words. He's not a Tuvan throat singer. He can't, he can't do two at one time. <laughs> there was a, I can't remember whose preaching book it is. Is it Eugene Lowry maybe? Is that homiletical plot? I can't remember which, which book it is, but he talks about like the different kind of um, ways that the law works in the hearer. Um, right. And it, again, it's an abstraction, so it's maybe not entirely helpful, but um, talking about the law of existence. And you hear this, um, especially with some of our uh, less Lutheran friends, more evangelical, where they just, you know, the law is manifest in our lives and in that we experience sin and death and, you know, we're sinned right. against. And, um, yeah, and it doesn't sting as bad, <laughs> but, it, but it's there. Um, yeah, I don't know where, what I was going to say about that. <laughs> Lost my train of thought. Well, to run with that, going back to the, the Bible study last night, mm-hmm. when we get to we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law or apart from works, I asked the question, or, and somebody made a, a snarky, one of the adults made the remark, how do Roman Catholics deal with this verse? Yeah. And, uh, and I said, not well. <laughs> but then after I, I got done being sarcastic, I asked the question, how would you deal with this verse if i just wrote it up on the whiteboard we are justified by faith apart from works of the law how do you what what do you do then if works of the law don't justify you how do you figure out a way 
to still justify yourself by your own work? And the answer is, well, you turn faith into a work. Hmm. You just take everything that applies to works of the law and you just take out the word law and you put in the word faith and you turn faith into a law. Because works of the flesh or works of the law, sorry, works of the law, works of, that are commanded, those are all outward things that we do. Mm-hmm. And so we're constantly searching for poor people, for example. <laughs> I need somebody, <laughs> I need a poor person to take care of. Because uh, that's real those, Christianity, right? Real. That's real because God commands it. Mm-hmm. Versus if faith is turned into a work of the law, that's all internal. That's either your intellectual process or your feels, whatever it may be. And that's the, the beauty of Protestantism is that Protestantism took the, the works of the law that were taught as works of super irrigation and whatnot mm-hmm. in the penitential system and just turn them inward. So now I don't have to go looking for a neighbor to help. I can help myself because work outward works of obedience aren't the thing. Inward works of obedience are the thing. In fact, if it wasn't for the Protestant turning of works of the law into the, the works of faith, we wouldn't have psychology because this, that's where psychoanalysis and psychology comes out of is this internalizing of ourself, hmm. that rather than looking outward at our neighbor for who we are in relation to our neighbor and God, we look inward at ourselves, which is ironic. That's Dr. Luther's definition of sin, right? To curve in on yourself. And right. yet Protestantism took faith, made it into an inward work of the mind and the heart. Yeah, and you can only really define yourself either based on what God says about you, what your neighbor says about you, or Correct. thinks of you, or whatever. But but if you look inward, then you come up with all sorts of strange ideas. <laughs> Correct. Like, or I don't want to be a. You know what? I wasn't made to be a father. I'm out of here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you just outwardly change. you have children saying, "Nope, you're dad." <laughs> inwardly, mm-hmm. you're saying, "No, nah, I can't do this. I got to get out of here." But it'll. You know, this inward turning. Obviously, for us as Lutherans, we would say that's. That's like one of the greatest tricks in history that the old Adam has ever devised is to figure out a way to turn faith inward and make it into a work that goes on inside of us because I don't, I don't need neighbors. I don't <laughs> need anybody because in the end, I'm just kind of trying to divinize myself. Yeah. And then you, you certainly don't need the exterior, you know, the, the external word. Right. You don't, you don't need the preaching. You don't need preaching because in the old days, you had the outward works of the hero's journey which was an actual journey. You would go on pilgrimages to mm-hmm. actual geographic locations. But then what Protestants did primarily, and, and you know, the, uh, this isn't, they didn't invent this. The monks were doing this in the monasteries too, you know, in the Middle Ages. But when you make faith into a work, now you've turned the hero's journey inward. So now it's just this mental journey that I take or this journey of emotions, of feelings or whatever it may be. And if you don't think that this matters, what I'm saying, what is the primary purpose of worship for most people? It's to be taken on an emotional or an intellectual journey from point A to point B. Or as people say to me every once in a while, I just feel so much better after church. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That might be true. It might be true. But is that the point? Yeah, right, exactly. Or is that simply just a consequence, a random consequence? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's Pastor, like you're really this... clicking on all cylinders this week. Right. Am I? <laughs> Am I really? <laughs> No. Yeah, I actually, I mean, I had the, I had folks that actually had the audacity. I don't know, maybe audacity is the wrong word, but um, you know, would, would regularly say, you know, I need something to work on this week. I need you to preach something that I can work on. I'm like, right? Really? Do you want something to work on? Um, and I would usually just switch to vocational. Then, you know, mm-hmm. well, are you a mother or father? You know, Go and sin no more. 
Yeah. I'll, I'll see you next week. Yeah, exactly. Go work on that. But that, 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 that hero's journey is the reason that that's such a popular trope that has persisted since the dawn of time hmm. is because it appeals to the innermost desires of our heart, which is to be more than human, mm-hmm. to be godlike, a demigod, or just God. That's why Thor is still popular. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's why ultimately, uh, yeah, that's the story of Luke Skywalker as well, right? Of course, it, 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 it's the age-old story. You know, Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, who used man to be with a thousand faces or whatever it was, man with a thousand faces. Uh, when he was writing those books in the '60s and '70s, even in the '80s, about all of these mythic relationships that mm-hmm. run through all mythology, all religions, and so forth, um, which later George Lucas claimed he had read in order to write. Well, which I mean, he true. was at USC, right? He was, but he had just been told that so many times in interviews and asked that question. They eventually, <laughs> by Empire, he was just like, yep, yep, me and Joseph that's Campbell. Right. We're like that's right. that's eye right. to eye on that stuff. That's that, He was my primary influence, That's as a matter of fact. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, he read the script. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Here we go, rabbit hole. So Metallica only really made two great albums. Okay. Right? They only Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets are... Okay. That's, I was I mean, going to agree the greatest, with that. They're the greatest heavy metal albums of all time. And a close second or a far second is the Black Album. because But it's a tonal shift, right? Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate Black Album for what it is. My son likes that almost as much as Master of Puppets, but he will concede that Master is better. Um, Good for him. They've been around now since the early 80s. They had two great albums, in my opinion, in the mm-hmm. mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And then they produced nothing worthy of that since then. And yet... World famous. Going to go yeah. down in history as the greatest metal band ever, which I beg to differ. Yeah, they can tour nonstop. But that then got me thinking to one of my favorite subjects, which is ripping apart George Lucas, that Lucas only really made the worst Star Wars movies because Lawrence Kasdan directed and co-wrote mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back and half of Return of the Jedi. Right. And Lucas only not the wrote Ewok the, half, by the not way. the Ewok part, right? <laughs> so George Lucas is going to go down in history as one of the greatest directors, filmmakers ever, and yet he's only responsible for the very worst of that of the entire franchise. the The Disney movies that have come out in the last couple of years are superior in every way to Lucas's stuff. It just is. So really, what we should be giving credit to are the people around George Lucas, right? Yeah, the Stan Winstons of the world and the John Williams, right? Because I, w- I was thinking of Ben Burt. Actually, he's my friend. Well, yeah, he's the same. There you guy. go. Yeah. But really, it, that is really the the case. Is that is it really a great man who elevates everyone around him, or is it he becomes great because at that moment all the people around him elevate him? Yeah, well, it's always about surrounding yourself with talent. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like Pat Riley was asked, or Phil Jackson was asked. Could you still? Would you still be one of the greatest coaches ever if you didn't have Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant? And he, of course, cheekily said, "Well, that's a stupid question, <laughs> that's right. it's, because it's not one or the other, but rather both. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. they, yeah, they're the greatest basketball players of all time. But I had to harness that talent, mm-hmm. and I had to coach that talent, which is usually the same criticism people give to you as a preacher who don't understand preaching. They tell you how to preach, or yeah. they ask you, "Why can't you do more of that?" Because it's not one or the other. Hmm. It's a confluence of events and things that have to happen. And primarily the Holy Spirit's in control, not me. I'm just the instrument. That's right. 
Don't blame me. Blame Miles for playing the wrong tune. Hmm. Yeah. So that's why people say, well, that, Pastor, that sermon was really hard to hear. And I'm like, yeah, don't, don't blame me. That was the text appointed for today. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. You ever have to make that distinction for your congregation? Like the gospel lesson is so not gospel. Uh, this is the gospel of the Lord, kind of. That you can actually you can actually see people in church wrinkling up their like they're crinkling up their forehead and wrinkling their noses mm-hmm. in just confusion that that doesn't sound good. What? Yeah, that's yeah, it's kind of like gospel. It's kind of like the, the the stink bomb in the in the boys' room. <laughs> it is, but it's always so amusing to me because I'm the only person, of course, that can see all of them at one time, oh, that's and true. I see it you see it kind of rippling across the congregation of people going, wait a minute, that's not nice. Now let's confess the creed. (laughs) Exactly, thank God. (laughs) There's the gospel reading from the gospels, and then there's the actual gospel, the proclamation of Christ. Big G, little G, however you want to do that. Mm -hmm. So do we want to push on with this? He uses this example. This heavenly preacher gave us an illustration of how we are to preach. That is the angel. True, we have to preach the law, yes. Only, however, as a preparation for the gospel. Yikes, man. Think about that. Hmm. We preach the law. Of course we have to preach the law. It's preparation for the gospel. Yeah. So he is stating that uh, the angel is giving us a sermon format. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 100%. But the, and, that, and you see that. Now that now that I think about it, you see that through all the preaching in like the book of Acts. Yes. There there may well, we don't know to talk about exhortation, but um uh, Well it just means to comfort in Greek. Yeah, exactly. So so but it but it, it's you know, brothers, what must we do to be saved after the preaching of Peter? Yeah, that great yes. end to that sermon, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this Jesus whom you crucified is both God and Lord. And they're like, oh, Yes, yes. Now what? <laughs> That's right. Gospel did not predominate, but he had part two. He was ready to go. Yeah, that's I true. Well, and then he regulations and the circumcision yeah. party comes up from Jerusalem. And says, oh, yeah. That, no, that's too much. You can't just forgive people that way. I always think it's funny that we, we assume that the disciples, because they hung out with Jesus, just got the gospel. And then you read like Galatians <laughs> and Paul just backhand slapping the disciples and Peter and James and James's disciples and Peter's disciples, just insulting and crushing them and not even referring to them by anything other than the circumcision party. And I scolded Peter to his face for turning away from the truth of the gospel. And you're like, dang, dude, this I imagine, is serious. I, I imagine Paul struck out a few times, you know. You, know, you think? Yeah. But it, we talked about it at length because it is a detail in the Galatians lecture that I think is worth mentioning in relation to this too is the disciples argued amongst themselves while Jesus was with them. Mm. They got mad because someone was exercising demons in Jesus's name and Jesus had to tell them that's okay. <laughs> then we get to Acts and they're still arguing with each other. They're still squabbling. They're still arguing about what Jesus's teaching means. That they have, they refer to themselves as the twelve pillars, <laughs> so that fourteen years later, when Paul goes up that second time to Jerusalem, fourteen years later, after the three, you know, the three years he was gone the first time and went up to Jerusalem, so like almost twenty years later, they're still doing this, yeah, that's because a- the circumcision party comes up from James from Jerusalem, and what I think is funniest that I never caught before talking about last night is all they asked is that we remember the poor in Jerusalem. That, that's what they're referring to is not the poor in general, but the poor in Jerusalem, because yeah. we know from Paul talking about it, he was collecting alms like constantly for Jerusalem, right? 
you go to the uncircumcised, we'll go to the circumcised, but hey, could you just send all of their offering money to Jerusalem? We're in trouble. This is really a capital campaign then. It really is. Well, we've <laughs> Not got a building the project. Su- we've got, we got the disciples of Jesus, but we're just striking out as far as the budget goes. Yeah, because they're all cheap. <laughs> Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, we're not feeding the Greek widows. Hey, that's not my problem. <laughs> Money's tight. You figure it out. Yeah. But it just goes to show that he, the Holy Spirit must work to do this because even Jesus' disciples, who you would assume on the surface, would get it, never mm. get it. Mm-hmm. And it keeps coming out in the letters of Paul, for example. And Dr. Luther points this out, that even though the church had baptism and the absolution, they had abandoned the gospel. The liturgy basically retained the, protected the gospel through the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And in his own day, he knew that they were going to turn away from the gospel and his own people. And Walther in his day is saying the same thing, that to not let the gospel predominate, to not follow the example of this angel who's given us the model sermon, we're lost. Yeah, so there's a way that tradition, like you, like you said, it has this kind of protective role. It's you know that when we're when we're hesitant to just quickly throw out, like say in the liturgy, singing "Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world," right, which was retained right. in the mass through all of the eras of the medieval period, and and through all the unbelief that they actually didn't believe that yeah, forgiveness correct. of sins was uh, given to them by Christ Jesus. You know, and uh, I also was thinking about the the collect of the word. A collect for the word, the old one, uh, that the word of God have like free recourse amongst us to not be bound, you know? Correct. And, that, well, and, and that's these, what Paul says in Galatians, that yeah. he rebukes Peter for what? For leaving the gospel. Mm-hmm. Because not, he, yeah. he, he put it in a little box and said it's for these people. Correct. And then it's no longer the gospel to, to anyone outside that. Once again, Paul argues, once again, you're, you led Barnabas almost, like Barnabas was almost led astray. By mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. that I'm not going to match you law for law. You know, in the in the kind of social media cultural wars today, it's well, you broke the eighth commandment, and then I'm going to fire back with, oh yeah, well, you don't love your mom and dad, so there, <laughs> and then you fire back with, well, you don't go to church regularly, and then I fire back and say, well, you're not a Christian because you you don't believe the first commandment, and now it's over because we've escalated it to ten. There's nowhere to go from there. <laughs> go to eleven. That's why I go to turn it up to eleven. <laughs> that Paul does not meet Peter with law. Paul meets Peter with, you've departed from the gospel. I'm not, I'm not rebuking you because you're a lawbreaker. I'm rebuking you because you're, not only have you left the gospel now, but you're also leading other people astray. And there's only one way to lead them. Which I think, again, that even the power of the gospel predominates. That it's like, before I can play video games, I have to clean the living room. I have to pick it up. It's a compulsive disorder I have. I cannot play video games if the living room is not picked up and everything's put away, or as my wife points out, where where it belongs, according to me. (laughs) But once everything's cleaned up, once the pillows are in order and the cushions are where they belong and the blankets (laughs) folded and my kids' toys are behind me and the speakers are exactly four inches, you know, blah, 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 everything's aligned, the Venus and Saturn are in their their Mm -hmm. equinox, I can play video games. I have to clean before I can enjoy myself. I have to have everything in order, right? That's what he's saying here, is that the law comes in and cleans up everything that's in the way that clutters up you receiving the joy of the gospel, this gospel message. And that the the law is obsessive compulsive in that way. 
it 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 does. It it not only straightens up the couch, but it will um, wet back the couch and repaint the walls and strip the floors and you know reset all of the speakers and do everything precisely as it must be according to God's command. So there's no escaping the law. There's no escaping its need to make room for the gospel. And since the gospel must be all in all, there's nothing that the law won't leave alone. That's right. And so the error that we always end up making is trying to provide a little space, yeah, a little a little mess in the corner that's ours. <laughs> Or that one closet where we stuffed all that garbage that we don't want to throw away, but it has no real use. And we do that on purpose so that there's at least a little space that is ours to control. That's mine. That's my stuff. That's my nest. That's my pile. That's (laughs) mine. (laughs) And the gospel, that's why we fight against the gospel. That's why, as we were talking about beforehand, uh, the, the angel, when they come to preach the gospel our first response is fear. Which is an interesting point because when I preach on Christmas, (laughs) the response to my sermon is not fear. No. And yet, this is the text. (laughs) This is what I read. It's in the liturgy. It's in our our singing. It's in our hymnody. Mm -hmm. It's in the reading, obviously. It's the the gospel text for the sermon. Right. Uh, Everything, even the um, Gloria, essentially points to this message, this angel's message. Yeah. And yet, why then is not our initial response fear? Yeah, so what, what was the preparation for that, for that gospel preaching, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly well, not is just the that, law. But is it, the consequ- is it a consequence of not having the gospel anymore? That you have the gospel written in the book, but you don't have the gospel preached? Hmm. Well, I, I think it's just a lack of ability for us to diagnose the real problem. You know, because mm-hmm. it, it looks—is it different. a lack of law, like you said? Is it a lack of law? I mean, you think about what um, uh, you know. What was the what was the law unto Mary and Joseph? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were lonely and they were afraid, right? Right, exactly. You know, and, and in the same sense that Adam and Eve were lonely and afraid, afraid of God's judgment, yeah. and and mm-hmm. they thought they were alone. They weren't alone. God hadn't left them, even though they had left God, right? And yes. uh, you know, well, that's so, that's a great point know, you bring people, up. It people just come tr- to church with all sorts of, you know, hangups. Yeah, right. But fear of God is prehistoric. It's primordial. To to use mm-hmm. a hyperbolic word, it's prime. It's it's it runs. It's genetic in us, right? It's from the mm-hmm. very beginning. Yeah. Uh, well, almost the very beginning. <laughs> uh, eight minutes after God created us, and we screwed everything up. Um, that's a Lutheran or eight reference. Days. Go read the Genesis lectures or eight days. Yes. Uh, how long till Satan tempted them? As soon as he hit the ground, says Dr. Luther. As soon as the right. devil hit the ground, Monday he tempted, morning. He tempted the woman. Yep, exactly. That it, it is. It's a it's a primordial our our relation to God in a big G edge of the universe can't comprehend kind of way is only fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's only the awareness that we are naked and exposed and vulnerable in relation to the rest of the of creation. So we come, we are part of creation. I believe that God created me together with all that exists, all that is. And yet, even though genetically I have so much in common with fungi and with chimpanzees or whatever, I know, right? I just scared everybody by saying chimpanzees. <laughs> um, 
because we're all made out of carbon people calm down we're all made out of carbon yeah um, that's that big black monolith on the horizon that's right it's coming for us it's coming for you barbara um wow there's a reference within a reference within a reference that was inception mm-hmm. um that when you put someone alone without a preacher and ask them like you said to talk about god to describe god to read the bible and describe not just from our bible the christian bible but rather any holy book mm-hmm. that describes god that talks about god and ask them what they think of god what they believe about god they must in the end respond and react with fear fear and trembling or fear and loathing either way mm-hmm. that they fear god and therefore they tremble before god or they fear god and therefore they loathe that god like ivan karamazov does in the brothers karamazov by dostoevsky it's not that ivan doesn't believe in god it's that he hates god for what he has allowed to happen particularly this example of children being attacked by these soldiers with dogs and being torn apart that when ivan sees these children murdered in this way like he says it's not that i don't believe in god it's just that i'm giving back the ticket I refuse to take the ride. That's the only natural reaction apart from a preacher of the gospel to this word of God. Therefore, uh, the comfort of the gospel is just that. It gives you comfort even when you're afraid. Which is a strange sensation. And I think that's something that, especially nowadays, because we've kind of escaped having to hunt for our food on a daily basis and worry about hypothermia and exposure to the elements and so forth, we take it for, you know, we think that struggle and affliction are bad things and we avoid them at all costs. That We've nerfed the world, as we were talking about in the last podcast. We've done everything possible to just pad everything with bubble tape so that we don't, or bubble wrap so we don't get injured. And yet, because we don't struggle, because we don't, we're not forced to band together to fight for survival. Um, it's like when I talk with farmers hmm. and, and MMA fighters. Farmers and MMA fighters are the most religious people I know. <laughs> because they're completely, you know, what they do is extremely dependent on forces outside of their control. And it's and life and like death. Like a farmer, too, right? It, it is, in the end. That as, as hard as you work, as much as you know, whether you're an MMA fighter or a farmer, in the end, there's just stuff you can't control. And that's yeah. where the fear comes from. There's comfort in the knowledge of, I know how to do this, I've done it before, I've worked really hard. That's the comforting part. The The fear part comes from all the stuff you can't control, that you can't ever get a handle on that's out of your control. So when you come into the church, that's essentially the thing that is, like Walter says here, prepares the way for the gospel. Yeah. In your vocation, the law is preparing the way for the gospel. And yet if you are doing everything possible to escape struggle, affliction, tension, stress, then... Not that any of those things that you should actively seek those because they're healthy or anything. They're not in large quantities, but in small quantities, they're very helpful uh, for us because they force us to confront ourselves. They force us to confront the fact that we are human, that we're not gods, that we're not, like you said, we're not going to um, live forever. We're not immortal. But more and more we're taken out of that. (laughs) There can be only one. It's like I was listening to a lecture about if you look at our synopses and our neural network and our brain, you map that all out with electronic impulses. It essentially is what the social, the internet looks like, right? Social networks essentially look like this external projection of our neural networks. 
and just kind of jokingly said what we we couldn't really conquer ourselves by turning inward we couldn't over you know conquer ourselves so we just projected that out onto the world in the form of social media and the internet and then we're trying to basically rewrite our neural networks Mm -hmm. through through the manipulation of social media yeah collective conscience collective conscience which is interesting because going inward drove us nuts so why not let's hook up to 500 million other people and see what happens Nothing could go wrong. In my head, I had one voice. <laughs> now I've got hundreds of millions of voices. Top-notch idea. Well done. Yeah, and so then media becomes about coming up with like this meta-narrative, this overarching story. Correct. And there isn't always one. Right. It's right. a lot like of individual earlier, stories. Instead of the hero's journey taking place in your mind or going for this emotional roller coaster, now you take the hero's journey virtually through social media. Mm-hmm. And everybody on social media that you engage, interact with, become a character mm. in this drama. Also, like out. a body part in this whole, yeah, we're like a collective hero, and it's going to be humanity's victory over uh, Correct. mortal enemies. Yeah, right. Well, it's just interesting that we think that consciousness somehow is located in like in our mind, <laughs> and therefore we'll all become better intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, psychically. However, you want to define it, whatever word you want to throw at it through more engagement on social media. Like if we just engage more people, we'll become better as people. Hmm. When Twitter proves the opposite. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that what predominates on social media isn't the best of what we have to offer, but it's kind of the worst <laughs> because there's no immediate physical consequences for that. When you farm, there are immediate physical consequences. When you fight, there are immediate physical consequences. I got kicked in the eyeball sparring last Saturday. <laughs> That's an immediate physical consequence of choosing to enter into that discipline. And as I was explaining to Annie, you can't walk out of the gym and say, well, I'm never going to do that again because I got hurt. You walked in knowing full well, it's a very real possibility that you're going to get hurt doing this because it's a physical sport. So for people to react as if I didn't know that was going to happen, even though you're doing something that puts you in actual physical danger that's unreal that's neurotic and yet people come into the church and what do they do same thing well i i i accept that intellectually i accept that abstractly but i didn't think you were actually going to say it as if you believed it right it's like well the consequence of the gospel is you must have sins that need to be forgiven right so there's a there's a raw honesty um in faithful preaching right (laughs) That uh, exposes sin for what it is by the preaching of the law, which leads you know, for the purpose of, of the preaching right. of the gospel, right? That well, sin's the preaching be of the gospel, the, the dark heart of that, the, the backspin of the gospel is, um, I'm calling you back to the truth of the gospel because you walked away from it. Yeah, you maybe didn't realize that when you got here. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> you you thought, thought you had your life together. But. Uh, it's yeah. actually in Christ's death. Mm-hmm. that you're saved not in your living but in your dying that you're saved yeah so it's uh, so the preaching of the of the word and the, the, you know faith is is actually a, a new mind right that's given to us in mm-hmm. christ you know, a turning around a yeah, a turning, turning. yeah yeah we're, we really think of ourselves differently um god willing you know when, right well you think of yourselves as existing you're you're caught between two times the old adam which is your flesh and the new man in Christ, which is the spirit. And those take place in one person. Mm-hmm. And yet they're two simultaneous, like you said, senses of self or awareness of self or the revelation that you are now 
old Adam in the flesh and new man in Christ according to the Spirit. You're not one person, but two. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Which, when we discussed this in Bible study last night, I, you could probably devote a year to discussing that and not, as you said earlier about the mystery of this. The two natures of Christ are confusing enough to try and suss out logically, but the fact that I'm dead in baptism and that what whatever was carried away from the font that day was Christ, not me, so that when I look in the mirror and I see myself, I don't see myself, I actually see Christ who's in me, only comes through the gospel. Otherwise, all you see in the mirror is your old Adam. I mean, I mean death belongs to time, and, and life Correct. in Christ belongs to eternity, right? So, thinking of uh, Leia's hymn, um, you know, wide open stand the gates, and the, and the last oh, line. Yeah, nice. In this, in yeah. The sac- yeah, in the sacrament, God gives us, you know, uh, binds us together in unity, uh, time and eternity, right? Correct. That, that there's, there's, right, in the sacrament, you have both happening dying to sin and rising to new life in Christ and being joined with all those who are in Christ, of course. Right. They're in, they're in the body and blood. Well, it's, really, and it's a beautiful picture of that, of that dual existence. That's the, frustrating, that's the frustration for us is to not just exist in the flesh, mm. but to have to hope in somebody else's flesh. Yeah. Because Jesus is a person. He's a real man who, like you said, has a birthday and a death day. And therefore, he is bound by time, and yet he is infinite because he is also the Word of God. And that's our problem ultimately with the gospel, is the gospel points to Jesus, the very person of Jesus, and says, trust in him, and in his dying, you are saved. Don't trust in yourself. So, going back to the illustration earlier of turning faith into a work, another, the primary reason we turn faith into a work is because we don't want to look outward to Jesus extra nos, as we would say, outside of us. We want to look inward to the God who lives in my heart or the God who lives in my mind. And that way, again, I have control over my fate, over my destiny. And this is why we get all wrapped up in moral arguments, spiritual arguments, psychological arguments, political arguments, because what we're trying to do is take back control Hmm. from the people who are trying to take control away from us. Because that, that taking away of control reminds us that we're not divine. And Jesus outside of us reminds us we're not divine. So every major movement in church history that's moral, you know, charismatic, apocalyptic, but primarily moral and apocalyptic, has been a movement away from Jesus outside of us to how do we get this inward movement of my soul or my mind or my heart to go toward God so I can become more like God. Yeah, and then and, the corollary is that the there's also then an attempt to try to turn um, try, turn this world back into some kind of paradise that God hasn't promised, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And that really is the uniqueness of Martin Luther, even over and against somebody like Jan Hus or John Wycliffe, is that Luther and above all of these other theologians, with maybe the exception of Athanasius and Irenaeus, even more so than Augustine, is that Luther radically, radically, in the, in the very concrete definition of the term radical, he goes right to the root of what Paul is saying, which is everything is outside of us in the person of Christ. And there's nothing inside of us or in us that is going to get us one inch closer to being saved from sin, death, and the power of the devil. That really, if you look at Irenaeus and his arguments with the Gnostics and Athanasius and his argument with everybody on the Incarnation, then Luther, what separates them from all other theologians in the history of the church is 
they're doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on Christ externos, that the gospel must predominate. The power of the gospel is over there in the body of Jesus. Um, it's like the sermon for this Sunday uh, is the eagles gather where there's carrion, where the corpse yeah. is, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and this is the gospel interp- of the Lord. Right? This is the gospel. <laughs> my favorite interpretation ever, though, is that these the eagles are birds of prey. They're, they're carrion feeders, like mm-hmm. vultures. That's right. And that's sometimes translated as vultures versus eagles, but it's eagles. That eagles live off the dead. And therefore, in the parable, Jesus is saying that we are the eagles, that's faith, and the corpse is him. It's his, his body, his dead body, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Every time we eat his body and drink his blood, we confess his death until he comes again in glory. That we live as, as carrion feeders that our life is lived because we feast off the corpse of, of Jesus, of our God, which was offensive when it was first preached to the Greeks and the Romans. It was offensive to the Scandinavians when they heard it. It was It's still offensive to this day. It was even offensive to the Jews who knew better, you know, whose priests right. had been consuming this, the sacrifices of the animals in the, yes, in the temple and tabernacle exactly. for a long time. <laughs> to wrap this up, or to at least bring it into the final sentence here, mm-hmm. the ultimate aim, Walther says, the ultimate aim in our preaching of the law must be to preach the gospel. Whoever does not adopt this aim is not a true minister of the gospel. Oh, snap. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Just, just drop it. That's like when you read that's like when you read the lyrics to a Tupac song for the first time hmm. and go, "Oh, I I oh, all oh. right, that's serious." Yeah. I didn't realize that we were going there. That's a that's okay. Fine. <laughs> all right. I just like the beat, but okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love Tupac. But um, the ultimate aim in our preaching of the law must be to preach the gospel. Whoever does not adopt this aim is not a true minister of the gospel. Yeah. Or serve Mic drop. Yeah. Oh, woo. I like that. That's nice. So what what was uh, Dr. Nagel's maxim in regards to this? You know, um, the law is whatever gets in the way of the preaching of the gospel. Is that right? Right. Whatever doesn't deliver Christ is law. Whatever does deliver Christ for you is gospel. So therefore, you're not a true minister of the gospel. If you put butts and breaks, we would say, <laughs> in the in front of the gospel. It's not the law, the gospel, but something else. Or, yes, the gospel's free and unconditional for you, but let's just hold on a second. Let's not get crazy. Yeah, right. Let's put the brakes on that. We're reaching terminal velocity here. Let's pull back on the throttle. Nope, there is. That's, you know, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, but if I haven't, I often, as you get older, you gain, you gain perspective, in the sense yeah. of when I was 25, I thought this is the best year of my life. Hmm. I'm at my best. Mm-hmm. When I was 35, I thought, nope, 35, best year of my life. I'm at my physical, intellectual, I'm the best right now. At 45, I said, I got to stop doing this. Because <laughs> when's you know it's the law of diminishing returns. At some point, I'm going to be 85, God willing, and say, this is the, oh, wait, nope, definitely not. Or, yeah. but maybe there's people that are 85 right now who will listen to this and say, you don't even know how good 85 is. Yeah. People yeah. don't let you get anything for yourself. Everyone wants to wait on you and drive you around. That's right. You can tell senior, people to pay your rent and they will. Senior <laughs> Senior discounts. That's senior right. Discounts. <laughs> you can pretend that you're de- you have dementia so that you don't have to pay attention to orders. I th- well, I thought about that. We had, uh, we had one of the presenters at the conference I was at this week, um, used to be a professor at the seminary and is now retired. And, and I'm listening to his lecture, and I'm like, 
he would have never have said the, any of these things when he was a professor. Oh, I you know? you're going to tell me he got dementia from teaching. No, 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 no. So, <laughs> so the, the sense was is that you know, in old age and retirement, you know, you just kind of everybody, everybody's going to play along with you, just saying really what's on your mind yes, now. You know, yes, exactly, just, just, exactly. Just lay it out and don't don't That's be ashamed. Funny. It was. It it's was. Like my friend talking about the old racists in his congregation and how everyone younger, even though it's, they'll say things that are explicitly racist. Everyone mm-hmm. just goes, yeah, well, they're old. Yeah. They're old. You got to forgive them. Yeah. It's like, really? Cause I'm 46. No one has ever said you got to forgive them. Like no one is just like throwing that out there. Like that's an option on the table for me. <laughs> Cause at 46, no, you're responsible. You're guilty. You're going to pay. That's right. When you're 86, you get a pass. You just get a pass. That's the beauty of it. But that is such a wonderful statement that if you don't adopt this aim, that the ultimate aim in our preaching of the law must be to preach the gospel. That, But this is the point that Dr. Ken Corby has made, too, is that if you don't preach the law in its fullness, you can't preach the gospel in its fullness. Because the, the more you apply the law to the malady, to the illness, the sweeter the balm, the sweeter the medicine will be when it's applied. So not not wanting to preach the fullness of the law in order to, let's say, not hurt someone's feelings or make them feel bad about themselves, or you're just not in the mood because you're feeling particularly convicted that, that morning, deprives the gospel of its potency, mm-hmm. of its power. That's right. That's the problem with Creamer sermons is that you think that the law and the gospel have this value and therefore you must preach the law in its fullness because that's its value and the gospel in its fullness. No, you must preach the law in its fullness because forgiveness of sin sounds that much sweeter when everything has been stripped away from you other than your need for a savior. And yet the power of the gospel predominates that message because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. What do you believe? Well, what do I believe about my sin? What do I believe about my salvation? What do I believe? You know, it's on and on and on. And yet the heart of that is still everything that I confess that I believe is built on the foundation of the gospel. That's what I'm here for. You are forgiven for Christ's sake. Exactly. That's what I'm here for. That's it. Not not I forgive you your sins, but if you're going to go that route, I forgive you your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. It's the name of Christ that has the power to forgive sin, not my forgiveness. So that's why we don't say things like, we make our beginning in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or I forgive your sins as a minister of the gospel, let's continue. <laughs> as if it's your, it's only your possession. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That the gospel does what it says and says what it does. Yeah. We're just servants or ministers, right? Just right. here to administer, to give out. To point them to the truth of the gospel, which is you don't want to try and obey the law to impress God. Bad things happen. <laughs> yeah. Been down that road. Doesn't work Let out. Let me so remind well. you of the last time we talked about this. Yeah, that's right. Yes. You don't have a gambling problem. <laughs> you have a gambling addiction. There's a difference. Exactly. So, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to add to this? It's such a. It's heavy I duty. Love Thesis it's heavy 25. Duty. Yeah, it's heavy duty. It is. And yet he states it so simply, so, prof- well, matter of factly and profound in its simplicity which is, again, the kind of almost false modesty at the beginning then when he says, I'm inadequate to give this expression, but I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. So it's really an interesting question to find out whether he, uh, these are just lecture notes. I'll have to look that up. 
Yeah, I would I would appreciate that. I don't know. I don't think it's in the introduction to the edition of mine. Maybe it's in the newer edition. That's what I'm looking at right now. Yeah. But I would like to know if because I'm assuming like with table talk, a lot of table talk, Luther knew they were writing stuff down and he did read over some of it. Right. He put it he put his imprimatur on it. Yeah. So yeah, Yeah. I wonder if it's that way with the with the lectures, because I doubt that unless you had a really kind of um what would you say, shady publisher who's like, Yeah, let's just publish it and not let them know. Um, and CPH published it, so it's on the up and up. I'm sure they, they took all the notes, wrote you know wrote down the um, teleplay, <laughs> and then came back around to Walther and said, hey, does this look like your notes? Is this comparable? Is this accurate? Do you want to edit anything? And then they would have published it. Because I wouldn't imagine that this would be so popular for so long if it was just a shoddy transcription of a whole bunch of students. Notes. Right, exactly, yeah. And it's notes taken, like you said. It's not every day. It's like once a week they're getting together and, and listening to these lectures. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to it after it's all over and try and remember what you wrote, why you wrote what you wrote, what he said that you may not have written down, all that stuff. It gets really complicated. So, yeah, really, it would be interesting. Did I really say that? <laughs> right. Right. I'm brilliant. Did I say that? I wrote this sermon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So let it, let that be a lesson to you, kids. The word of God is not rightly divided when the person teaching it does not allow the gospel to have a general predominance in his teaching, and that we are to follow the example of the angel in Luke chapter 2 for how to preach the gospel properly, how to let the gospel predominate, and that the ultimate aim in our preaching of the law is to prepare for the gospel, to preach the gospel. So that for Dr. Walther, who taught many, many students and taught many, many pastors, that this is the way you preach. Yeah, this is and this is the school of experience. I mean, this is late Walther. You know? Oh, so much, so much, exactly. So, yeah, in, in all of these, it's worth it, I think. Anyways, this is my favorite work of Walther's. I go back to it continuously, actually, um, especially 39. I love, I love 39, lecture 39, the 39th evening lecture, November 6th, 1885. Um, I just love this one. So I go back to this many, many times. And it's one of the few works of theology where if I'm not doing anything, I'll start thinking about this. Walther. You can just see Walther in your mind's eye, right? I can, well, because I've seen that picture of where he did this at. And so I start thinking about, oh, I should start, I should go back and read Thesis 25. And then, yeah, I just, I get through these first two paragraphs or, or I'll just kind of page through what I've got highlighted and go back to it and go, oh yeah, that's, a, that's so good. That's so important. And Walther is so adept at both scripture and the Lutheran confessions. He is a master potter, if you will. It's just pot after pot after pot, just gold mine, just perfect. So I got nothing left. You got anything left? Nope. Nothing left in All the right. tank. Empty. Well, everybody enjoy trying to find a reference to John Travolta and angels. That's right. And uh, thank you for joining us again for this discussion of uh, CFW Walther's lecture on the law and the gospel thesis 25 and come back next time for a brand new episode Uh, i hope we pass the edition (laughs) see ya do you like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts. As Lutheran as it gets, 
Gospeled Boldly and the Black Cloister. Check out www.higherthings.org support for more information. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.